Good morning. I'm Ryan. I'm one of the pastors here. If we haven't met before, I want to pay you a particular welcome um, and just tell you how glad we are that you are worshiping with us. As always, those who are online as well, um, it's just good to be uh, together and singing praises to God, even those new songs uh, uh, for, uh, for this, this, this Easter season is coming up, y'all. We might as well start preparing now. Um, I missed you last Sunday. I'm I, uh, grateful for Dean being in the pulpit. I was down at regional meetings in Denver. And um, let me just tell you, if you don't know the, about the larger part of the connectional system that is the Evangelical Presbyterian Church, um, you've heard of Brian Yant coming next Sunday, right? We're all going to be praying very diligently for him, uh, for him to come. He's going to be here with us. He's not preaching, uh, but he will be here for a Q&A right after worship. Uh, with, with you and um, um, I was down at these regional meetings last week and what happens is when you bring on a new associate pastor or senior pastor, um, our connectional system uh, be- begins to um, support and equip that process. So when Brian comes here, what happens is there's a hundred pastors and, and elders that get together in various regional locations. Our region is Colorado, um, Washington, Texas, uh, Utah, and then uh, Montana, and a little bit of Tennessee. And when we all gather together, um, we do examinations for incoming candidates. It requires five written exams, and then two oral exams, one before a small committee, and then one before the entire floor of pastors. And we get to ask these guys any question we want on the Bible, on theology, on the way the church is structured, and the way that we work. And uh, so Brian's begun that process as he transitions out of one denomination to another, and we're going to pray all goes well next weekend because this guy has uh, really got me fired up. I'm excited to introduce him to you. Um, but as for today, um, we are in the middle of this sermon series on, uh, on John's gospel. I'm excited, y'all, that we just get to, to keep trudging through this together. And by the end of it, we're going to look back and go, man, all of us together as one body, unified in Christ, got to to share in, in this story of who Jesus is and what he's done. Um, so let's open up our, our Bibles, if you would, with me to the book of John. We're going to read chapter 6, verse 22 to 40. But before we do that, I want to set this up. Chapter 6, verse 22 to 40. Um, before we jump in, I, um, I want to remind us where we've been over the last few weeks, aside from last Sunday when Dean gave us a break. Um, remember, Jesus has been performing miracles all over Jerusalem. And uh, in the midst of these miracles, he begins making these crazy claims to be God. And a claim like that creates quite a stir. And now as a result, this following emerges. He's acquired this, this curious crowd. And it seems now that wherever Jesus goes, there are thousands of people that are chasing after him. In fact, we read a few weeks ago um, about these back-to-back moments where Jesus first feeds this, this multitude, this crowd of thousands and thousands. But then out of nowhere, at the peak of this miracle of the loaves and the fishes, he pieces out, walks completely off stage. He sends the disciples away into his boat, and Jesus now disappears from the public eye. And in our lesson today, we're going to find Christ is now on the other side of the sea with the disciples. And um, they are walking, uh, Jesus has just walked on the water with the disciples in this, this fish storm. But now as he's back on land, as with any person of fame, the crowds are looking for this miracle worker. Think like paparazzi. Uh, they lost him and they're a bit put off because it's been days and they can't find him anywhere. Now pause with me for a minute. Let's just talk about some ground rules 
some common thoughts when it comes to treating your fans. Like rule number one, make sure your fans know how much they're appreciated, right? That's common sense. And yet, Jesus feeds the crowds and doesn't even stay for the encore. Nothing. He's gone. Rule number two, in cancel culture, you should always talk your fan base up. Give them what they want to hear. But in the story we're going to find this morning, Jesus, instead of explaining himself, he insults this crowd. He says, you are following me for the wrong reason. You just want more fish and chips. We're going to read this here in a second, but as we do that, I want to ask that we slow this down and really chew on this passage together. I think a lot of times uh, when we hear a story like this, it's human nature to deflect. We first kind of point the finger at the characters in the story, or we might even think of that person in our life who needs to hear this sermon, who needs to understand what the preacher just said. But here's my take this morning. Here's my question that I want us to think about. When it comes to Jesus Christ, are you a fan or are you a follower? We're going to open up to John 22, 6 verse 22 to 40. Let's read God's word now together. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, It was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. And that the Father, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Anybody watch the Super Bowl last week? 
Tom Brady does it again. Who, who here in the room is a Tom Brady fan? Anybody? Okay, now true confessions. In the spirit of unity, who is sick of Tom Brady winning Super Bowls? Some are in the same household. That's interesting. I tell you what, yeah, Tom Brady, he's a polarizing figure, right? Uh, he's, he's played something like 10 Super Bowls now, and he now has six rings Seven rings, says the, well, here's the deal. Here's the deal, Doug. I have to confess. I have to confess this. I really wasn't into it, right? My team is the Denver Broncos. You know what I mean? So they're not in the game. Uh, so last Sunday was the kind of game where, uh, where it's the Super Bowl, but we're really just hanging out as a family for the chips and queso. You with me? No apologies. But here's where I get myself into trouble. Uh, here's my confession. This plays right into uh, that six verse seven mistake. I say that I'm a fan, but if I'm serious, I really don't follow the Broncos that much anymore. In fact, if I'm honest, the last time I really knew what was up with the Broncos was Peyton Manning back when he took us home in 2016. Anybody remember that? For those online, I have hecklers in the crowd this morning. But you ever been around somebody at a party and, um, and uh, they knew like every stat, every player of their team, they got like the lowdown on the latest plays. Somewhere in the conversation, uh, you realize you're in too deep and you're going to be found out for being a, a fraudulent fan. You ever been there before? Like I say I'm a follower of the Broncos, but here's the truth. Aside from the quarterback, even this year, I couldn't tell you a thing about them. But here's why I talked football this morning, and you know I don't do that a whole lot in the pulpit. You might have heard the name Kyle Eidelman. Kyle wrote a book a few years ago called Not a Fan. And in this book, Kyle lays out this inconvenient truth for the church. It stings a little bit, but it's worth a lesson. Here's his claim. Look at this on the screens. He says, the biggest threat to the church today is fans who call themselves Christians but aren't actually interested in following Christ. Like they know who Jesus is, they wear the team jersey, they cheer the players on, but if you get into an actual conversation with them or if you actually stopped and watched their lives, you'd quickly realize that's not their team at all. They're just here for the drinks and the popcorn. Go back with me to the city of uh, Capernaum for a minute. Capernaum is this beach town on the northern edge of the Sea of Galilee. And in our lesson this morning, uh, the small town is now overcome by these fans of Jesus. The crowds have been looking for Christ for days. You know, when, when you perform a miracle that begins with a few fish and a few loaves, and now you feed thousands, that gets hyped up pretty quick. And these multitudes, they finally find Jesus miles away from where he left him, and they want answers as to where he's been. In fact, so much so that they actually engage him in a dialogue with three specific questions. Did you catch that? And yet with every question comes the same response. I'll paraphrase it. Jesus wants to know, are you a fan or are you a follower? We're going to walk through the three questions uh, this morning, and I'm going to show you what I mean. Look at this first one here in chapter 6, verse 25 up on the screens. They say, Rabbi, when in the world did you get here? If you were to translate that in our day, um, the idiom would be something like this. Where have you been? 
These crowds, they, they feel a bit put off, right? They, they love this man. In fact, in verse 16 we're, or 15, we're told they wanted to make Christ their king, but he up and leaves them. And now they want answers. And yet Jesus' response should cause us to sit up a little bit. He says, let's not talk about me quite yet. Let's, let's talk about you. No, he said, the only reason you care is that you ate your fill. You don't care about the miracle that it points to. You don't care about eternity or who I am. Your entire reason for being here right now is self-serving. You just like my cooking. I'm on to you. Recent study by Barna Research reported a few weeks ago that nearly 50% of all those who went to church regularly a year ago have not been back either in person or online since the pandemic began. Now, if that stat is true, as difficult as it is, I think we should digest that together. It tells us something. You know, pre-pandemic, we came to church for the community, right? That's a huge part of who we are at Spring Hill. We want to build authentic community in Christ. But what happens when the relationships don't come quite as easy as they did before? We came to church because it grounded our families for the week ahead. It it set our lives back on solid ground. God's word, a firm foundation. But then came the distractions and the, the burnout of parents and grandparents and their children having to learn a new way of life from home. It's not quite as easy as it once was to focus. And some of us, let, let's face it, we're still just waiting for the coffee and donuts. Come on now. Preach. No, that, my three-year-old, right? Addie, like that's, that's why she comes to church. She wants the coffee. No, not the coffee. She wants the donuts. And for better or for worse, that too has went away. All good things, right? All benefits to being a part of a life of a church like Spring Hill. And yet none of that can be the reason, the main reason why we're here. See, there's a difference between sitting in the sands and soaking up the benefits of being the season ticket holders in your hand. That's one thing. But there's something entirely different about actually stepping onto the field and playing the game. Sun, rain, snow. Here's the problem in our scripture lesson this morning. These fans, they're not, they're not looking for Jesus so they can worship him. They're looking for him because they miss the fringe benefits of following behind his wake. They want more of that feast. They want the leftovers. They want the the feel-goods. But just as they tuck their napkins in for round two, Jesus now stops them in their tracks. He says, you are here for the wrong reasons. It's a head-scratcher when you first read it. Right? Like, what is so wrong about wanting a second meal with Jesus Christ? Why is that an issue? The benefits, that's part of it, isn't it? The community and then the coffee, the donuts, eternity. Look at how this plays out, though. Look at verse 28. Here's our second question that the crowds ask Jesus. They're bewildered. They say, if coming here for our fill was wrong, then what is it we should be doing? What must we do to be doing the works of God? Here's another way we ask it. I think often we say, how can I know God's will for my life? Am I supposed to turn right or left? What exactly does it mean? How do I know that I'm doing the Lord's work here? This one comes up all the time in youth and college ministry. 
Right? Should, I, should I choose this college or is that the one God wants me to go to? Should I marry this girl or does God have someone else lined up for me? Should I focus on this career path or, or is that the one that God wants me to take? How can I know the, the work of God? How do I know that I'm living into what he has for my life? If you've ever asked that question before and been stuck on it, you're going to love this answer because Jesus says it's really simple this morning. He says, this is the work of God. God's work is that you place your trust in Jesus Christ. That's simple. After that, it's all just details. That we put our faith in him. And look at how Jesus expounds on this in 627. He says, quit working for the food that perishes and start looking for eternal life. I know I've, I've shared stories before with you about this place called Blueprint Ministries back in Texas. Um, I love this, this, this mission. Um, San Antonio is one of the highest homeless rates in the country. But Blueprint, they go out and they find these people who are facing eviction, and in one summer they restore their homes, almost brand new. New roofs, new drywall, new subfloors, new bathrooms, you name it, they do it. And for seven years, we would bring these van loads of junior and senior high on this mission trip, and they're the ones that do the work. But here's what gets me fired up. The first night, they'd bring in a local church, and we would all sing praises to God with these strangers that came in from all over the country. But here's my absolute favorite part before the week even began. The camp leader would stand up, and he'd open the scriptures, and from the very beginning, the very get-go, just to make sure we were all on the same page, he would tell the kids... You know all the work you're going to do this week is going to crumble again, right? All the houses are going to fall apart. All the nails will rust away. All the roofs will leak again. All the subfloors will rot out. And then he'd tell us, you are not here to restore homes. You're here for something far more eternal than that. You're here to lead people to Christ. See, these, these crowds, they... they They want to know what is it that we should be doing with our lives. And Jesus tells them plain and simple, stop looking for the food that perishes. There's something with far more eternal consequences. As a staff, we've been studying the book of 1 Corinthians. This week we hit chapter 3, and this has kind of been on our minds all week long. Look at this concept, how Paul lays it out in 1 Corinthians 3 verse 11. He says, for no one can lay any foundation other than the one already laid, which is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, their work will be shown for what it is, because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each person's work. If what has been built survives, the builder will receive a reward. If it's burned up, the builder will suffer loss, but yet be saved, even though as one escaping through the flames. If the fringe benefits of following Jesus are gone, if all the things that we've built up in addition to the gospel disappear, then what is church? Jesus says, all this time your pursuit should have been trusting in me. See, in the crowds, as you know, they're bothered by this, right? I mean, Jesus wants him to, them to put their trust in him, and yet he's just cut off their leftover meal. They want to know, what is in it for me? Why, why should I follow you if you won't give me what I'm looking for? Here's how they put it. Look at this third question in verse 30. They say, what signs will you give us so that we can trust in you? What may we see that we could believe again? 
It's ironic, right? They go on to ask. They said, Moses, he made manna rain down from heaven. What are you going to do? To the same guy that just provided bread for multitudes. You might remember the manna story of began with the same sort of grumbling. The Israelites have been set free from their slavery in Egypt, and now they're stuck out in the wilderness, and they're much like these crowds. They're convinced Moses has led them astray. They actually ask him, why didn't you just leave us back in Egypt? We were happy as slaves. They begin demanding food, and they're starving. And you'll remember, God in his mercy, he rains down manna from heaven. It's one of my favorite Hebrew words. It means, what is it? It's like this doughy-like bread substance that, that came with a side of quail. And now we come to John's gospel, and these crowds bring the same kind of complaint against Christ. Why should we follow you? We want a sign. Moses did it. And I love Jesus' response here. He says, do you not get it? The desired food that you think that you want that comes down from heaven this thing that you've been looking for all this time, this satisfaction, it's me. So here's the difference between fandom and followership. A fan wants to be close enough to Jesus to reap all the benefits, but not so close that it requires anything of their life. But a follower is sold out. Doesn't matter the season or the weather, they're all in. A fan, they come to church to watch the band play on stage and thank you, band, for what you do. They want to hear them sing their favorite songs. But a follower sees themselves as the choir that joins the instruments up on stage to an audience of one. A fan is all about the knowledge of Jesus. They know all the plays. They know about his life and his death and resurrection. But a follower wants a relationship with him. Claire DeGraff is an ordinary guy, much like you and I, a business owner. He's an elder at his church. But he wrote a book a while back called The 10-Second Rule. And this is the rule that he came up with for him and his family. The 10-Second Rule is this. He says the 10-Second Rule is to do the next thing that you're reasonably certain Jesus wants you to do and to do it within 10 seconds before you change your mind. Here's how he came up with this idea. He said, one day I imagined this scene in my head where I'm playing baseball with Jesus. I'm the pitcher. Jesus is the catcher behind the home plate. And as he settles into his crouch, ready to play, I begin looking for his signals. What pitch does he want me to throw? He said, I wait in anticipation. First, he signals a fastball. I think for a moment and shake my head, no, not a fastball. Claire goes on to say, well, then next he signals a slider. This time I look toward my teammates, but they're not feeling it. No, I'm not really comfortable with that either. He gives me a third signal, he says. But I'm not really even playing the game anymore. I'm too caught up in my own plan. He goes on to say, Then I imagine Jesus silently withdrawing his signaling hand back into his mitt. And there's a deep disappointment in his eyes because he's decided to let me throw whatever I want instead. Let me just give you 10 seconds. Maybe it's the first time. Maybe it's the, the hundredth time. But maybe it's time that we really stop and consider that question. Fandom is the cancer of the Christian faith. But I don't know about you. I don't want to find myself at the, the gates one day and hear those words from Jesus as he says, 
man, I don't even know you, Ryan. But Lord, I preached. I, I gave all the Bible verses to everyone. I, I shared the gospel. I did signs in your names. I did works for you. Now go away from me. I don't even know you. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. This is the important part. But I said to you that you have seen me and you don't believe. It's not a harsh rebuke from the crowds. It's not an insult to Jesus' fan club. This is a heartfelt plea. That Jesus says, this is the will of the one who sent me that I would lose nothing of all that he's given me, but raise them up on the last day. I want to invite the band to come up. You guys come on forward. And now we're going to worship with this song about what it is that we believe. It's the Apostles' Creed, one of the oldest creeds of the faith. And here's my invitation to us this morning. Don't just sing it like a fan at a concert. Sing it to an audience of one. Sing it to the one who loved us enough on this Valentine's Day to come down from on high, to walk among this this broken people, to show us how to live the good life and then to die for us. And let me just say this. If you have never given your life to him, then somewhere in this song, the words will lead you to it. Take 10 seconds before you change your mind. Pray with me, will you? God, it's crazy how a crisis can sift the sands of our faith and make us dig deep into what it is that we really believe. God, so we pray for those who have fallen away, but Lord, as we pray for that, we we admit it's us. God, all of us like sheep, we have gone astray looking for another shepherd to lead us out in the pastures. So Lord, would you make this morning our return? God, I pray for any person in this room who they've, they've heard the stories, they've maybe even grown up in the faith, but they don't know what it is to follow you. God, just give us 10 seconds. Lord, help us not to change our minds. God, hear our praises this morning. Amen.